Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for episode five of the Rural Renewal Podcast. We're so glad you're with us. Um, we've talked a bunch over the t- over time about how the word rural, uh, when you say it and you're trying to enunciate it, uh, is complicated. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, you can laugh every time you hear us uh, stumble over rural uh, as a word, um, even though we live in a rural place. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're not here for, for this. So let's uh, talk a little bit about um, why are, what's the, why are we here for the podcast? What, what are we, what are we trying to accomplish with the podcast, Kathleen? We want to be an encouragement to pastors and lay leaders in rural churches. We know that sometimes it can be isolating to be serving in small communities and we just want to encourage you in what you're doing. Yeah. And um, since this is episode five, we probably should still occasionally introduce ourselves. So I'm Chris and this is my wife, Kathleen. And we are pastors, co-pastors of a church in rural Vermont. We are. And we are so glad that you joined us again today. Or we're thankful if you this is your first time joining us. Definitely. (laughs) Uh, So uh, we are recording this in early April and in Vermont. We have a season, uh, it's usually mid-April, but we're getting close to it. Uh, We call it mud season. Mm. And mud season is when everything closes down, the ski areas close down, restaurants close down, everybody goes back home who's not from around here. And those people who are here take a break. Um, And usually, a lot of times people will take an extended uh, time, um, like it could be two to four weeks. Yeah. Um, being in a tourist area, things really do kind of shut down anywhere for whenever the ski area is closed, which is usually first couple of weeks of April. Some, a couple of the ski areas stay open, uh, at kind of on a limited basis for the next few weeks. We still have snow, so they can, but most of them shut down and, uh, summer tourism stuff doesn't really get started until at the earliest, really Labor Day. So people Not are kind Labor of, Day. Uh, yeah, that's when it ends. Uh, oh my goodness. Uh, Memorial Day. That's, Memorial that's Day. the holiday at the beginning of the summer, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Just, just making sure. So uh, mud season. Uh, we have dirt roads around us. Not we don't live on a blessedly. Road. We live on yeah. a paved road. Yeah. We, when we first moved here, we lived in temporary housing, and that was on a dirt road. And uh, I remember one time we left because we were going to meet with um, the other pastor in town about I think Holy Week services. But uh, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, we left our our little cottage, and the town crew was working on like on the road. I think they were putting in a new. They were either changing out a culvert or yeah. a spot had gotten so muddy that muddy they just had to like tear up a section and put yeah. in. It was they they were doing some and serious we work. Sat there for like a good five minutes, and we realized that they weren't going to let us go, and there was no way they could let us go through that road. So and you, you know, we were new in town because we sat there. Now I would just go talk because I know the guys on the town crew, but um, at the <laughs> time, uh, yeah, we just kind of. Waited like city people, really. I yeah. shouldn't say that. But and we, then we yeah. turned around and went back to the cottage and rescheduled our meeting. We did. We did. Um, so yeah, a mud season's a real thing. Uh, if you live pretty much anywhere that's rural and that gets snow in the winter, um, uh, I suppose it probably gets muddy in places that even don't get snow. But for us, uh, definitely April is a, is a time when that happens. Um, and it is certainly a time where all uh, where people head out of town um, and uh, yeah, try to get away for a little bit here until it gets to be real spring and it gets real nice. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, so Chris, now that we're getting into springtime, what's something that you do in the spring? Yeah. So, uh, and you could do this. This is not necessarily a rural ministry thing, although certainly um, one of the advantages of having kiddos in a rural community is that um, there's, there's, you know, not that many kids. Um, our, our kids, basically their grades at school, there's about two classes worth of grades at every grade at the elementary school they go to. And so um, you get to know those kids over time and some of the different ways you get to do it. You either go and you're watching your kids participate in sports or I coach and I have been coaching Daniel's baseball team for uh, most of the time he's played it. COVID made things weird. There was a couple or at least a year when baseball didn't happen. But anyways, um, so I'm coaching again this year. So uh, just trying to um, be reminded. Thankfully, I'm, I, this is probably the next two years. Once he gets past uh, 12U baseball and moves into like school baseball, I probably won't coach anymore, which is probably good because he's getting, they're getting, the kids are getting to about the limit of my ability to actually coach them um, without actually doing a lot of work on learning how to do that. And I like coaching baseball, but probably don't have the time to spend a lot of time working on getting a lot better. But I think that's part of being a pastor or lay leader in a small community is that you get opportunities to connect with people in different ways. And uh, Chris, 
coaching is another way that he can connect with people. Yeah. Um, and that's, and, and I think we should encourage our people in our churches to do that too. Right. Um, they're probably already doing stuff where they're volunteering in different ways with different groups of people around town. And to the extent that they can see those places as one, where they're doing something that is, um, making the world a little bit more like the kingdom of God that, uh, that, that, uh, were promised is coming, uh, with Jesus, with, with, with Jesus coming, but also, um, that they, uh, they see it as an opportunity to uh, the relationships they're building, there are opportunities for for places for the gospel to be shared um, in uh, in really just easy ways because it's part of who we are and what we're doing. So um, I'm sure y'all are doing that anyway, but I'd encourage you find ways to do stuff outside of church to make your community a better place. Each week, we're going to give you a way to know that you have found uh, your way to the right podcast, Chris. Are you going to tell us your story? Yeah. Today? So in the last uh, couple of months, uh, we had to get rid of one of our, we have two vehicles, get rid of one of our vehicles. Um, we'd had it for a while as a Ford Escape, 2009 Ford Escape. And it had, uh, uh, we were hoping, we actually were planning on getting rid of it this spring anyway, really, but we were kind of hoping to get it inspected one more time and then be able to sell it for something. Not a lot. I mean, it's a 2009, but, um, but, uh, they put it up on the lift at the, the, sh- the auto shop that we go to, to get it inspected. And, uh, we now have, you know, even in Vermont now we get texts of pictures of your car and everything like the, what, what's going on with it. And they sent me pictures and, and the bottom and, and we, I knew there was a lot of rust, but it was, it was bad. It was, it was real really bad. bad. <laughs> um, they basically told me, and I, I didn't have any trouble believing them, that I probably really shouldn't be driving it anywhere. Um, so I did drive it home, and uh, we ended up, uh, long story short, we ended up getting another, a new vehicle, which again, we were starting planning on not a new, new vehicle, but new DOS vehicle. Uh, and uh, so one of the things that happens when you're a small town is that when you... Um, when you have you wave to people that you know who are driving by, huh? Yeah. Um, and uh, you get to know people by the cars that they drive. And so, uh, what happens always, and not that we get new cars all the time, but whenever we've gotten new cars since we started living here, uh, is that, uh, you know, you wave to people and they give you a weird look to begin with because they don't recognize your vehicle. And then they have to really kind of squint to see who you are. And it takes like a couple months where you're waving to people because you recognize their vehicle and uh, they're looking at you weird because they're forgetting uh they're forgetting what you look like and i know that uh, that i do the exact same thing when somebody else gets a new vehicle um not that i'm opposed to waving to people i don't know believe me i do that all the time but uh, uh <laughs> but it's good to wave to people you know you, you know you want to wave to people that you know. so anyways that was uh that was you found the right podcast if that happens in your town all right Inner, the person we're interviewing today is Lindsay. She works for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada as a researcher. And we, it was a great conversation that we had with her. It was, it really was. Um, she has, uh, uh, she's been to seminary. Um, her husband is a pastor. Um, really uh, some interesting insight into, uh, she did uh, a big research paper with the Evangelical, uh, Sorry, Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. They did a big research project on small churches, um, which didn't have to be exclusively rural churches. This, they, there were also some urban churches that were smaller. But of course, we know that most, uh, a lot of our smaller churches are in rural areas because we're we live in small places. So, um, so uh, some really interesting insight into that. Um, uh, and yeah, she was a, she was a real, uh, I think, really interesting and informative to talk to. So um, you should definitely listen to the interview. It definitely has some some good stuff there for you. What? was one thing you learned from the interview. All right. So one of the things I learned was uh, how Lindsay did a great job talking about how using the typical church growth models doesn't usually work great to evaluate. And this is a theme I think we've heard in a couple other places as well, but that that, that the church growth models that we would normally go to um, to evaluate how we're doing as a church community, um, they don't tend to work great in smaller communities and that we have ways that, to do evaluation of, of what we're doing ministry-wise that um, we can do because of the relationships, uh, the personal relationships we often have with it, with most everybody in our in our church community um, that are harder to do in larger congregations. And, and what was yeah, sorry, what was one of the things that you you, you one of the one of the things you took away? Kathleen? She talked about uh, pastors being generalists mm. that we have to be able to do a little bit of everything. Um, and uh, the best way that pastors can learn to do that is by learning from other pastors. Mm. It's not always something that you can learn in seminary or in a class. Uh, you really just have to learn by um, by example. And I thought that was a really good point. Yeah, definitely. And so uh, here's our interview with Lindsay.
We're excited to welcome Lindsay Calloway to our podcast today. Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up working for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada? Yes, thank you so much for having me today. Um, well, I grew up in Canada. I am Canadian, and I grew up in a small rural church just about an hour west of Ottawa, which is the capital of the country. And I went to school in the States, and I became much more invested in my faith while I was there. So quickly transitioned from pursuing music to pursuing Bible and theology. And I met my husband at university and then we got married and I had always known that I wanted to go to seminary and I knew I wanted to serve the church in some capacity. Um, my husband knew he wanted to do that too. As a pastor, I didn't feel, uh, that clarity. So I just, we kind of, we both went to seminary with our goals in mind and he actually got a job in Ottawa, just an hour from where I grew up. And I wasn't sure I was ready to go back to Canada, but um, his call was clear. So we came and I was a little bit worried I wouldn't be able to find something in this area. Um, you know, who, who's going to need somebody with with a master's in systematic theology in the capital <laughs> of, of Canada? Um, and so I, I stayed home for a little while and then um, heard about this position with the EFC. And uh, I remember speaking with the director of research, Rick Heemstra, my colleague, and he said, you know, we don't try to replace the church. We want to help the church by doing what it can't. Uh, but collectively, you know, the evangelicals we serve shape our mission. They're our audience. And ultimately, they'll be the ones that use the research. And I just remember thinking, this is it. I, I didn't know how to articulate it before, but this is what I want to do. And so I'm very privileged that I got the job and I've been able to work in this role for uh, the last three and a half years. Yeah, thank, that's that's amazing. It's it's actually pretty similar to our story. When we went to seminary, I had a real strong sense of a call to pastoral ministry. Kathleen, you um, just knew you were supposed to go to seminary at the time, and we ended up serving. We serve as co-pastors of the church we're at. But yeah, that's uh, um, yeah. Sometimes you just start on a journey for God and kind of see where it takes you, right? And uh, yeah, sure, it's, it's good. Um, now, uh, you just published a the Canadian Evangelical Small Church Study uh, recently. Um, and it highlighted several challenges of pastors serving in small churches, which many rural churches are small churches. What are some of the areas that stood out to you as areas of specific concern to those in small churches? Right. So, you know, when I think about some of the challenges, two main things come up, um, just the sense of isolation and some of the felt deficits and preparation. So isolation. Um, you know, my my colleague Rick likes to say, Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, and we send small church pastors out one by one. And yeah. oftentimes they're navigating um, difficult relationships, difficult circumstances, and they don't always have somebody to confide in. And perhaps a spouse, that can be a gray area. I'm, I'm also a pastor's wife. Um, and it can be difficult to hear about some of the stories because I, I don't want to change my perceptions of the church. It can be kind of dangerous. So that's that's a yeah. gray area. Um, and, and, you know, some of these places are quite isolated or uh, they're remote or there's just not a lot of people. And so how um, how connected pastors feel uh, it was something that we just saw that there's a lot a lot of need um, that to provide a network of support. Uh, how do you do this? How um, can I handle this situation? Um, just just items like that. And then in terms of some of these felt deficits in terms of preparation, um, it was really a lot to do with people felt felt really um, pastors felt like they were prepared for the preaching and teaching roles and mm. a little less so for discipleship and visitation and counseling. That was all part of that. Um, but but when it came to people and building management, a lot of them felt mm way out of their wheelhouse. And and so things like, how do I um, navigate a board? How do I set an agenda? How do I navigate these relationships? How do I introduce change effectively? Why are people resisting me? Uh, and even just how to set boundaries. Um, many make themselves available to their church, even on their days off, still checking emails, still taking calls. And and this was especially, uh, I found um, among women actually, we're more prone to doing that than the men. So um, yeah, so just being able to, to that people and building management, and then also that isolation and networks, um, just feeling like they're cut off. Those were, I think, some of the 
the two huge challenges that we found in the study. Yeah, we certainly don't know anything about uh, trying to navigate building stuff or anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, it that's that rings so true that that it it um, there are lots of uh, roles that we end up finding ourselves in when we're in, we're in, we're in small church ministry and rural ministry, uh, and some of them are are the things you talk about a lot in seminary, and some of the things that you you maybe laugh that oh maybe someday I'll have to deal with that in seminary. Yes, yes, you probably will. <laughs> right. Now, the study also highlighted the difficulty in measuring success in small congregations as the metrics that are often used can be inadequate in determining if congregations are truly thriving. What was some of some metrics that arose from the research that might better help a small church evaluate its ministry or the other than the traditional metrics? Right. So. You know, when we talk about success, what we're really asking is how do pastors know that they're doing a good job? And I think on many levels, we equate success with increasing numbers. So more people filling the pews and number of conversions and baptisms, members joining. Um, But a lot of this is informed uh, historically by the church growth movement, which basically promoted a scientific kind of management system for the local church. So you kind of input the right items and you get the right output. And so you offer programs and methods and you could just tweak a thing or two here and the church should grow. Uh, But I think we all know by experience and just logic uh, that sometimes that numerical growth isn't possible. The church could be in a very isolated or rural area. Um, You could be in a college town and have turnover every year Uh, or, you know, a commuter suburb where people just drive to wherever suits them on that big highway. So most yep. of the small churches, uh, the pastors that we spoke with, um, they used the term growth, but they used it to describe the spiritual state of their congregation changing for the better. And actually, I have the stat here. Um, 97% of survey respondents considered spiritual growth in the congregation extremely or very important to their conception of success. 97%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and only about one third thought growth in like growth in average worship service attendance was of great importance. Um, so they focus on, on various kinds of relational growth. It's not just numerical growth. And small church pastors are able to do this because they are more intimately involved with their congregations. Uh, they know mm. on the ground what the victories and, and progress uh, is that their congregants, congregants are experiencing. Um, I like to think of it a bit like, like a high school. You have your your principal who might be more concerned with uh, casting vision and leading the staff, and uh, then then enrollment numbers and overall academic performance. And the small church pastor might be more like that math teacher who has a relationship with the students, and the teacher knows mm-hmm. who's struggling, and um, you know they're staying late and meeting with that student, and they can celebrate with the student when their grade moves from a C to a B minus on the next test. Mm-hmm. But that might not make a difference on the overall performance of uh, the school's <laughs> academics. And so the principle, that, that really makes no difference to the principal, but it, it really means the world to the teacher. And that's how you know, she's going to see that I, I am actually successful in what I'm setting out to accomplish here. And, um, and that's where pastors are looking, that, that spiritual growth. As a pastor, thank you for that, because it's a, it is a good reminder that, you know, um, the what are the things yeah what and 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 understandable that value like what we you do know you know the people that you're 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 pastoring um you know uh the circumstances of you know i it's it's just funny you mentioned the the people who move in and out of town um as so we're in a resort community and so certainly uh, one of the things that certainly happened during the pandemic is all all of a sudden a lot of people moved to town who uh, who had second homes here and things and 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 also a bunch of people moved because all of a sudden the real estate market really boomed and it was uh yeah and and you feel that transition and 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 but you don't lose the you know those that relationship energy and the and the and the growth the spiritual growth you see in people um it's it's hard when they move to a different place but you also recognize that's just part you know that doesn't lead to great numerical growth but the the growth is still certainly there so yeah right exactly yeah. um now one term that came comes up quite frequently in the study is the idea of the small church pastor as a generalist first what does that mean to be a generalist well, at its most basic level, a uh, generalist is someone whose range of duties is broader than a specialist. And I, I know that sounds silly, but um, 
we can think of it in terms of we use these terms all the time, especially in the medical field. So there's uh, if you break an arm, you'll probably go to your general practitioner and they'll refer you to a, an orthopedics specialist, something mm. like somebody who's going to be able to address the bones. And so um, the generalist will have a just either a broader range of duties, and that might not always be what we expect in the pastoral role. So we expect teaching, preaching, visitation, things like that. Um, but it might also include paying for insurance, um, negotiating uh, the, the roofing contractor when you need a new roof, uh, or shoveling. Uh, you guys are in Vermont, you get snow. Shoveling the, yeah, the yeah, water. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's me and one is, other guy at our church. We race to see who can shovel first. <laughs> so that that would really is what we mean by a specialist. Whereas, likely in a larger church, um, some of those other items on your, on the generalist portfolio can be outsourced to either another staff member or there's just um, more people to rally into teams or or committees to to oversee some of these things. So that's what we mean by generalist versus specialist. Mm-hmm. So uh, how can the church prepare pastors to be generalists? Well, that might be a question also for our theological institutions um, mm. who are preparing our pastors for the ministry. Um, but I think there's also the the element of w- what can we reasonably expect a seminary to do? Can we ask our New Testament professors to to teach us a course on managing boards? Maybe not. Um, Maybe some of those professors haven't been pastors, and so they can't even speak into that. So there, I, I think we need to think through how to prepare pastors in a way that they're learning from other pastors, whether that is in the seminary mm-hmm. setting or if it's in more of a, a practical uh, or um, apprenticeship model. But we and and again, is it the church or is it denominations who are going to help facilitate this kind of training? this ongoing experiential learning that um, I think there really is a need for and that the pastors that we interviewed uh, also expressed that, you know, we, we know what we're doing uh, in terms of what the seminaries have prepared us for, but there's so many other roles when you are a generalist and how do I prepare for those roles? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were really, really blessed um, during seminary. We, uh, Gordon, where we went to seminary had a, uh, uh, mentored ministry ministry program. And we happened to kind of stumble into a mentored ministry situation where um, it was a church that uh, was basically, it was a, it was a small church uh, on the bigger side of small church, but a small church. And they probably, they were at a point where they almost could have afforded an associate pastor, but they were a solo pastor situation. And instead they, um, they used some of that funding to help um, bring in seminary students. We, and there was a, there's like three or four of us that came in over the years um, to, to serve under uh, or to serve as interns basically. And it was, uh, especially going into rural ministry afterwards into a small church, it was incredibly helpful because um, our, our mentor that he was amazing and um, really uh, bringing us along and all the different kinds of stuff that he was involved in. And, and a lot of it was stuff that there, there was no way you could really develop a seminary class that would have kind of prepared you for some, for a lot of the stuff we learned there. And it was, uh, I really, really value that time. God really blessed us by bringing. bringing yeah, that's huge. That well, and, and when I think about that, like, I mean, that took a lot of intentional thought about budgeting even, um, as the church, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's gonna be part of our mission to budget for bringing people into, to experiencing and learning on the job in a rural setting. Um, and I think for a lot of, of maybe seminarians, they see the small church as just the the necessary first step before they move on and graduate into a, a larger church setting. Um, but how can we, you know, um, I don't know. Maybe it's it's about really creating a, a vision for a, a flourishing small church ministry mm. and inviting people in to see that. Um, so it, mm. it's really about changing some mindsets, I think, about what small church ministry is. Um, but I, I love that your church, that, that that church had that vision and that mission that, um, that the budget followed uh, to, to yeah. actually execute it. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was a, Huge yeah. And we, I mean, they went through some hard times while we were there and people were really open about it with us and it was so helpful. And, you know, at one point the moderator said, Kathleen, are you sure you want to do this? Like, and she, she was serious about it. 
but it was good for me to reflect on that um for sure and it it prepared us for some hard things that yeah. happened here so that yeah. was good yeah just really um, <laughs> but you're 100 percent right they um they certainly sacrificed something financially and something they could have potentially had in order to be that place where teaching happened and certainly other uh, pastor there um who liked to mentor i mean he had he had before he had pastored, that was in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but before that he had pastored uh, actually in, uh, in Michigan and had pa- pastored near uh, the University of Michigan. So he had had um, uh, experience with lots of students, which was helpful mm-hmm. too. But uh, yeah, uh, really taking that role very seriously was a huge blessing to us in our ministry. And it certainly helped us invaluably in the time we were here. Because um, one thing that happens, you get into a small <coughs> church and there's, there's just, you're kind of Throw, not th- thrown at the fire is the wrong word, but it's, but that idea, there's just going to be a lot that you're going to have to help and figure out and navigate right away. So, Right. And and I wonder too, yeah. you know, it's mostly the, the larger churches that tend to have the funds to be able to afford having mm. interns and giving them the chance, but they usually don't have a chance to preach, um, at least to, yeah. in, a, in a larger context, because there is a bit more of this uh, kind of standard that has to be met. Um but then it also, I think it whets their appetite for, for large church ministry and that mm-hmm. shapes their desires and their expectations for what to look for in a church and in a job. And it, it can just be a funneling a, away from the small church. So I love that. I would love to see, I don't know, a, a, a denomination help kind of fund similar models mm-hmm. for small churches, even when the small church maybe itself couldn't sustain that program, but there's got to be somebody who, who could help that along. Yeah, here, here. Yeah, I love that. that. Uh, Now, how can churches recognize that their pastors are called to be generalists and thus come alongside their pastors in the ministry God is calling the churches to? That's interesting, because I think as as a small church or as a, a small church congregation, I think they can help their pastors by having appropriate expectations for the generalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, understanding that just because their pastor um, you know, ha- has more of a, a general portfolio. It doesn't mean that they should always be shoveling the walkway, or they have to be the ones <laughs> to print and fold the bulletin. Um, so, I, I think many generalist pastors understand what needs to be done, and they do it humbly. Uh, but they are set apart for a role for preaching and administering the elements or sacraments, depending on your tradition, uh, to speak that biblical truth into people's lives. So, I think if they they could be freed to do that more. I'm sure they would welcome it. You guys can speak into that, but I would love to see congregations uh, take on a, a bit of become generalists themselves and not just expect mm. that their pastor will do it all. Um, and I think of the other side of that as well. No, you go ahead. I want to hear about what what you well, think about. I was going to say I, I would. I think it, celebrating that um, that some of the stuff that happens as a generalist as a, that when congregation congregants do it, the value that's there. You know that that shoveling the walk. Uh, it doesn't seem like the spiritual activity that you're going and doing, but it's part of how the church manages to, you know, keep keep doing what God's calling it to do. And uh, um, and I would say, and we don't, I, I, we need to be reminded of that too, to celebrate that with the people who do those kinds of things in our church. You know, whoever's making stuff happen. Um, and and right. I can tell you, as a generalist pastor, when something happens and I'm not involved with, it, if whether it's shuffling or sometimes a Sunday school class happens, and we, it, it, I feel so, I just feel like, oh. The, this is amazing, right? That, that people are really growing in their faith and growing in the ways that they're serving God by just this happened and and, and we didn't have a say so in it. Because so often, you know, you end up as the linchpin of so much that happens in a, yeah. in a smaller congregation. And that's fine. It's part of what you're called to. But um, you really recognize. And when people are doing this all on their own time, all on their own effort. Um, wow, that's really amazing. And God's really doing something special there. And uh, yeah, um, celebrate that. Definitely. Definitely. And, and you know, I would love to get your take on this too, because in the literature like review process, I came across a bit of a nature nurture debate about the small church pastor. And you know, some will say the pastor is naturally inclined for the small church uh, for this generalist kind of ministry, or pastors can actually learn the skills to serve well in a small church context. And I think there's probably elements of both at play because mm. you know, I think the key is is um, so many of the pastors I talked to said that they felt to their core that they were called to this the small iteration of the church. They want to be with people. They want to live alongside them. Uh, they don't want to be vision casters and function as CEOs. Uh, so maybe there is an element of nature there, but it, it's something to think about. It, do you have to be called to be a generalist or can you just be a generalist and, and humbly serve? 
Yeah, I, I think personally, I, I mean, I, I do feel like we were somewhat called into that. I mean, we, we felt very called. To, we had a very geographical call to northern New England. We grew up in northern New England, kind of felt like it was where God was calling us. There, most most churches in northern New England are small. So um, we kind of, but uh, I do think there's a lot you can learn about it. Uh, and you can find the beauty. And I mean, I, I really appreciate a lot of the, 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 I would have a hard time if I was a specialist. I think I would be, I'm, I would be. I, I need this variety of things that I'm doing. It really mm. kind of helps it helps give us, and I think you do as well. With it yeah. provides us with kind of renewed energy. Um, uh, if I, I I'm kind of glad I don't have 35 to 40 hours a week to spend on working on a sermon. I mean, I'm glad that I can listen to people who do have that amount of time. There, right. it, it allows for some really amazing insight, and and obviously, we want to take uh, preaching and teaching really seriously and do as good a job as we can with it. But um, also. Uh, I think my personality, per, I would, I would struggle if I had that much time for that. Uh, <laughs> well, and I think too, like we, we, we both grew up in, uh, in small churches, did, yeah. um, and rural churches, uh, me for the most part and you definitely. Yep. So I think, um, that was, I mean, we were comfortable there. We knew, um, the beautiful parts of being in a small church. And so I think we could appreciate it in a way that, um, other people who maybe had, grown up in a big yeah. church might not understand. But right? I would say anybody who feels kind of called or who, and you know, uh, to embrace if you, if, if, whether you thought you were planning on ending up like us in a smaller church, or if you just end up in a small church after seminary or, or in any part of your call, um, embrace the, if you embrace that, um, I do, I would say that people, I think it feels like, you know, the congregants and that the relationships you can build there and the ways you can grow together. Um, I, I feel like even if you've been a specialist in your ministry, there's probably a place where you could grow in but you definitely yeah. have to be willing to let go of some things. So yeah, just like you do sure. when you're, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, uh, so the study talked about the difficulty for many small churches to change. Why is it difficult in particular for small, smaller congregations to change? Well, you know, what often happens is a pastor comes in and wants to, to change, say the name of the church or uh, add a service uh, or change the language. And, and I think what, what people often associate with change in the small church is it's, it's questioning sort of the founding vision or the marks of faithfulness mm -hmm. and the congregation can resist it because there isn't enough trust built into that relationship yet. And the, the pastor hasn't given the past uh, due honor or respect. Mm -hmm. And so I think the congregation resists change, even when they can't quite articulate why it often comes out as maybe uh, you know, this is the way we've always done it, or who do you think you are? Um, so one of the most helpful comments or concepts that we drew out of the research was this idea of a congregational covenant. And it's what we call the unwritten understandings of what the church is and its mission um, and what that's all about. So often there are emotional or symbolic ties to that covenant, but it's more than nostalgia they're usually formed around sort of the, the founding vision or the golden age of the church. And it reflects the founding philosophy for why that church exists. And it's not just, mm. you know, we exist to preach the gospel and live as the body of Christ in the world. It's we're doing these things at this place, in this time, in these ways. And um, so like in the case of, of my church growing up, it was a Baptist community for German immigrants uh, and the covenant functions as sort of that origin story for the community. Mm -hmm. And then faithfulness to that covenant could often become a litmus test for faithfulness to the gospel. Uh, because in most cases, mm -hmm. congregations have the gospel at the core of their covenant, but it's more of an embodied expression uh, and it's addressing, addressing the needs of a certain context. And so if, if you change some things that are associated with that idea of a covenant, um, it, it can compromise faithfulness. And I think there can be a lot of pushback there. That that was at least our interpretation of of why something um, surface level seemed to, to have such deep repercussions. I, I uh, as someone who grew up in a small church, I think I've probably felt that <laughs> felt that myself. Or certainly, I know my uh, just through my parents have known that we were very involved still in the church that I grew up in. Uh, and I think uh, the feeling like. Uh, People are invested in who you are, who who the congregants are in a small church is so important. You know, knowing that your pastor um, uh, is interested in 
in what what has happened in the past, you're so right about that sense of history. Small, I think small congregations so often have a real strong sense of of history. Particularly, the people who are really active in those small congregations tend to. Um, oftentimes, mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I say this. I I went to church with my grandparents and great grandparents when I was wow. a little kid. Of course, there was a sense, yeah, which is a really it was a really amazing place. There was definitely some. You know, there was both, it was, it felt like family and it was, the, it was family and it was amazing, but there were, I mean, there's, there's also, as, as you've talked about, there is complications with being in us in a, in a church like that too. But one of the things that is, you certainly have a sense of the history of it because it's often, you know, very much shared history. It, the people I wasn't related to in church, I'm, you know, our families had been in church together for decades. So oh, that's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, we're, I mean, I couldn't have, it, certainly for growing up in the faith, it was such a beautiful place to grow up in the faith. Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah, I remember my mom telling me the story. They were um, they were putting on a, a baby shower for my pastor's wife at my, my home small church um, that I grew up in, and they used the wrong linens, and they were <laughs> molded by a more seasoned member of the church because these linens were not meant for this purpose. And, you know, that, that's one of those things where you kind of ruffle feathers and you, you're not, you can't mm. quite put your finger on what happened there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you can try to learn the history, but sometimes you're going to just bump into it. And, uh, and that's where you have to, yeah, you have to earn that, that trust yeah. of being of, uh, yep. Um, and, and, and you can earn it. It, it, it takes a little work, but it's, uh, I think when I've seen places where pastors have put the time in, you do see congregations are willing to change. Small congregations are willing to change, but they just have to have a sense that everybody uh, that uh, that there's a sense of knowing what was there before and of where we can mm-hmm. go together going forward, and that we're not gonna sort of completely lose who we were before on um, the value of who that was, even as exactly. we move forward in the way that God's. Yeah, you know, one pastor I talked to, I said, you know, how how do you build trust in your congregation? He said, one cup of coffee at a time. Um, there, there's really an element of like, you, you have to love us for who we are before you try to change us. Yeah. So I thought that was a great response. Yeah. yeah that's a, that's yeah, an amazing definitely. line. I'm going to have to use that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, now talking about change, how can pastors and small churches work together to bring about change when it's necessary? Um, you know, something we found was, was change can be internally imposed or externally imposed. And oftentimes when it's external, it's a little more urgent. Um, but it, it does kind of um, wake everybody up and, and can rally people a little bit more than than internal change. It's a little slower and takes a little bit more unpacking and reflection. Um, I think, you know, uh, in, in our report, we go through a few case studies of how change was implemented by it, successful change was implemented by pastors. And um, sometimes it, it's like really just the preaching is focused on uh, just ha- what who do we want to be? What is our identity as this church? What's our mission? And it's not quite quite changing what the founding vision was, but it, it might just be changing the context in which that vision is lived out. Um, so, and then other times it's just you know building trust and and talking to some of those key people, those those gatekeepers of the covenant. We all know they're yeah. there. They don't have official roles technically, but it's it's the seasoned member who scolded my mom. Um, you know, she might be a gatekeeper. So it's having uh, building those key relationships. And and building trust and just and sticking it out. Um, a lot mm. of our research said that people don't they don't tend to feel success until about seven or eight years in a in a position, and that's usually the point where most pastors are leaving, and so they're not sticking yeah. it out long enough uh, to actually yeah. reap the rewards of of all of that investment. Yeah, and that's something we've been. Uh, it's been a huge part of. Are what we felt called to here and a part of, you know, what we've, um, in our interactions with others, we actually have a group of, of pastors we get together where we try to encourage each other in long-term ministry, because it's just, especially in, in smaller churches, it's so important to, you know, we still feel like we're getting, I mean, 13 years here and we feel like I, we sometimes are getting to know stuff about people that I've known really well for 13 years. And, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. We can, let's, let's work through this new thing together. So yeah, uh, it, that, that's such a good, good thought to, you know, stick through it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the study uh, investigated the difficulty of denominations relating to small churches. Why is it difficult for denominational leaders to both recognize and equip their smaller congregations? You know, I, I think a lot of it is is down to that that metrics question. How do we understand success? And you know, your denominations they have they have their conceptions of success, and they have goals that they're working toward. 
Um, it's, you know, of it's that principle so. in the scenario. Uh, and then you have your, your teachers who are the small church pastors on the ground in the classroom um, and kind of understanding where the students are at. So I, I think, you know, it's really going to come down to um, communication, understanding how the small church pastors are understanding success and finding a way to find a, a common measurement, um, finding some way, some uh, sort of um, ability to to translate how one person is perceiving success uh, into uh, a way that you know the denominational leader can can understand that and work with. Um, and it, it might it might take more time. It might not be boxes that you can check or numbers that you can fill in. Um, it might be uh, some goals that you're setting or some stories that you're telling. Um, and I think that relationship can also be fostered by uh, listening to the small church experts as experts. They are experts in small mm. church ministry. And we know that, um, you know, what it takes to run a large church doesn't, it's not the same set of skills. It's not the same dynamics uh, at work that are at work in a small church. So just really listening to the experiences of the small church pastors. And um, I think providing networks of support. Uh, you know, we often assume that pastors can kind of go up the denominational ladder and mm. get sort of advice, but in the, there's going to be fewer and fewer people that they can access. And then those people are ended up being stretched thin. So just making sure that there's some openness and um, uh, networks of support for the, for the pastors so they don't feel neglected by the denomination and the denomination doesn't feel like they're not doing their part as well. But, you know, it's always going to come down to communication in any sort of relationship. Yeah. I think. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Very true. Definitely. Um, now, you've also done some uh, work studying parenting faith. What are were some of the things that surprised you about how parents are thinking about how to incorporate faith in the lives of their children? Yeah, so I'm actually not at liberty to share too much on this because our report has not released yet. Uh, so that they should listen come to out. your podcast. Yeah, they should listen to your your podcast, podcast is really good. The episode on parenting as a parent, I found it really, really good and interesting. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, f- I actually forgot we did that. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, March 15th, that will come out, but you know, we're, we're okay. seeing a big emphasis on sort of role modeling and, um, and teaching, but, uh, oftentimes there's sort of this gap that's left in religious skills development. So are we just giving, you know, we don't want to give one over the other. Uh, we really need them both to be working in tandem. Um, mm-hmm. we also just saw some, some patterns in parents that they they don't have a robust understanding of the role of the church. And not only equipping their children, but equipping them as faith formers. So I think I'm coming mm. at this a little bit biased as a as a maybe um, a pastor's wife, but I, I would just love for people to the church is there, um, like they they want to help and and they have resources. Um, some of the, some of the gray hairs in the church, I'm sure, would love to speak into yeah, to some yeah. of these young families' lives. And yeah, so so you know we're we're seeing some patterns. Uh, and just how discipleship is approached and maybe some gaps in uh, what can be done, I think, in terms of resourcing and support for parents and and the same for children. But uh, that's probably as much as I can give you until until the report is released. <laughs> they, well, they, people should definitely check it out. Yeah. I, I found the, the, the teaser and the podcast of it was, and even that is, yeah, I think there's going to be some really interesting information that comes out of that. So definitely. Uh, people should check it out. It's well worth it. Um, before we end today, uh, Lindsay, if someone wants to look you up online, how can they find you? Well, you can go to uh, theefc.ca. That's not com because we're in Canada.ca. And uh, you can find a little bit about me. Uh, I'm not really sure how to get to that page. But um, if if you email us, it's research at theefc.ca. Uh, me or my colleague, Rick, would love to hear from you. Um, and then our our small church report, the significant church report is available for free download as well. That's the efc.ca slash, uh, you could just do SC for significant church. And there's 250 or something pages to, to read through there that is available for free. So we'd love to see people use that resource. Yeah. As, uh, in a, in a form before, before seminary, I was, uh, actually meteorology is my undergraduate, uh, major. And uh, so there's a little bit of a math background there. And so uh, I was really impressed with uh, You don't read a lot of 
church. There's not a lot of church uh, studies that do a lot of st- good statistical work. And I was just impressed with, uh, with um, your methodology like that. So that's a little oh, geeky uh, on you. numbers, but I was really thank impressed. With yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking some time out and uh, we hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you both for having me. Thanks, Lindsay, for that interview, Lindsay Calloway. I should say, you know, you know, we come from a small town uh, and have uh, uh, small town kind of sensibilities when we forget to give uh, last names to our interviewees. Um, but yeah, Lindsay Calloway is her uh, is her name, and she really was wonderful uh, to share with us. So uh, one of the things we do at the end of each interview is we want to give you just a couple things that, or one thing that each of us took away from the interview. So Kathleen, what was what did you take away from that interview? Uh, she talked about how you build trust, and that by one cup of coffee at a time mm-hmm. and that you have to love who they are before you change them. And I, I love that. Yeah. I think this is the second time one of us has taken away coffee with people <laughs> as our, as our application from one of the interviews. I don't know if that's uh we just hear the word coffee and we're like, way to go. Um, but, uh, yeah, but yeah, no, I think that we do love coffee. That is a really good point though, um, about, you know, how you build that, those relationships with people. And so, th- uh, my takeaway was that in rural, in rural ministry, we can often can know and celebrate people when they move their grade from a C to a B minus, right. Um, uh, or, or, you know, maybe to be a little more charitably when they go from, you know, a B minus to an A minus or something like that. But we, we, we know our people and, uh, that we know, uh, we, we can measure that w- w- where have they made gains in discipleship. Um, that uh, that we can just know because we know the relationship with them. And I think that's really um, something that we should take to heart evaluating our ministries. So um, we always want to close or we close our uh, the podcast down with uh, one thing that has happened recently in our lives that reminded us we live in a rural location. And so Kathleen, what do we have this week? Uh, so our youngest is in kindergarten and uh, they exchange Valentine's Day cards and little goodies and stuff like that at the it, back in February and uh, around Valentine's day, around Valentine's day. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and we, uh, she came home with like a big gallon bag of like all sorts of things. But, um, I remember when I was a kid and we would do things like that or like, um, for Halloween when we got goodies, uh, we were always told not to eat homemade, um, things because you just never know. Um, and the, the danger of eating homemade stuff. Um, however, she came home with a, a homemade cookie and uh, it just reminded me of that. But I know that I know who brought that cookie to school. I know his mom. And when his mom had the, her second child, I made uh, a meal for them. So like, even though it's a homemade cookie, I completely trust that you know, it's safe for my kid to eat. And we did the same thing for trunk or treating um, our church and the fire department collaborate to do a trunk or treating event. And uh, same thing happens there. Uh, there'll be homemade goodies there and no one, no one worries about it. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing that if you didn't know the person, I, I remember actually growing up uh, on, on Halloween night, we used to, uh, you know, we would, uh, because I lived in a rural area and this was before times like everybody seems to do trunk or treat now, which means that kids can go to a central location. But back in the day, we used to drive around. Um, it was like an all evening event. And uh, we always ended or the second, one of the last places we went was to my great grandparents' house. And uh, great Grammy always made um, uh, marshmallow uh, Rice Krispie squares. They were oh. very good, but um, we probably ate them at her house. We probably didn't even bring them anywhere with us. <laughs> we just ate them there. But uh, yeah, good, t- good times. Um, and that's the kind of thing that happens when you live in a rural community. And uh, some of the some of the ways that you're, you're going to know most of those people um, in a way that maybe you don't always, if you live kind of a different uh, circumstance. So um, take advantage of those kinds of things uh, in your ministries, right? Find the ways that the fact that the people, people will know the people who are in your church and you'll get to know the people who are certain, hopefully, well, certainly in your church, but also the people who are outside of your church and, uh, and find ways to, to help uh, really show how the gospel can speak into the lives of people um, uh, who aren't part of your church communities, uh, even because you get to know them, you know, how the, with how the gospel could apply to their lives. So. We really appreciate that you took the time to listen today. And, uh, if you have a moment, we'd love for you to 
share about this podcast on social media. Also, if you uh, would rate us on wherever you listen to us on podcasts, um, that will help more people find us and be encouraged. We'd be appreciate any time that you give to, to help us um, share the word about this. Definitely. And we'd also uh, encourage you to, um, if you're, if you want to interact with us a little bit more and a couple of the other, and a few other people who've started to interact a little bit with us online, um, there's a couple different ways that you can do that. Um, one, you can interact with us uh, on our Facebook page, which is the Rural Renewal Podcast Community. Thank you. Rural Renewal Podcast Community. We'll say it again. Um, there's a Facebook page. You can join that um, and you can certainly share uh, You share any of these kind of rural, funny rural stories that you've got or things. We'd love to share them on the podcast or just talk about ministry stuff with us and connect with us. We'd love that. Um, or you can email us. What's the email address, Kathleen? Podcasts at freshexpressions.com. Thank you very much. Um, we make her say that one because I don't say it the right way probably most of the time. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, we're, we're so thankful for you listening to the podcast. Um, and we're excited. Um, we have, uh, one more next week and, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, talk with some people who are doing, uh, fresh expressions in rural locations. So that's going to be really yeah, exciting. Doing creative ministry Definitely. within a rural context. Yeah. It was, it, we had some great conversations. So we hope you'll join, join us next week for our final episode in this season. Yep. Rural Renewal Podcast is a part of the Rural Renewal Summit, an initiative of Fresh Expressions happening April 21st and 22nd. The summit is a two-day digital event exploring new possibilities for small town churches. Learn more at freshexpressions.com slash Rural Renewal Summit. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we live, eat, work, and play by leveraging the creativity and endurance of the inherited church. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of the church that works in small towns, big cities, and everywhere in between, go to freshexpressions.com slash how to start. To connect with this podcast, you can email us at podcasts at freshexpressions.com. Rural Renewal Podcast is hosted by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Blackie. It is edited by Joel Limbowen and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Our North American director is Dr. Christopher Backert. If you've learned something or have been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Let us end with this prayer for town and rural area from the Book of Common Prayer. Lord Christ, when you came among us, you proclaimed the kingdom of God in villages, towns, and lonely places. Grant that your presence and power may be known throughout this land. Have mercy upon all of us who live and work in rural areas and grant that all the people may give thanks to you for food and drink and all other bodily necessities of life. Respect those who labor to produce them and honor the land and the water from which these good things come. All this we ask in your holy name. Amen.